Well, good morning again, church. So this morning, as we said, we finally finish our series on this letter to the Philippians. And if you are interested, this is now our 22nd Sunday in this letter. And my hope and my prayer throughout our time together in this book is that now that we're finishing it, we know our God more, we love his gospel more, and just by going week by week through God's word, we've all grown a little bit closer to Christ. And so church, now we have the privilege of finishing this letter. And as you can probably see from the scripture reading that was just read, it's obvious here that this letter is winding down. And you can see that in how Paul is finally bringing up his concluding topics. And and this was common in letters back then, just like it's common in letters today, right? When you know you're ending a letter, you end with the final things you want them to know about, often the final practical things you want them to know about. And that's what we see here in Philippians 4 as this letter concludes. Which leads us to our outline of how we're going to go through our passage together this morning. So when you boil down all that's here, we'll see that this ending can really be split up into two sections, two sections. And in our first section, we're going to see a picture of mutual love and unity and partnership in the gospel. And then second, after this, we'll see Paul transition to a massive, beautiful promise of God. And so that's our outline. First, a picture of mutual love, unity, and partnership in the gospel. And then second, a massive, beautiful promise of God. And then as we close our message and our series, we will then finish with the last few verses of this letter. And as always, church, just one last time here in Philippians, as we do this in this book, our goal here, of course, is to see what this meant for Paul and the Philippians, but also how God's word applies to us. And so with that said, let's start with our first section, seeing a picture of mutual love, unity, and partnership in the gospel. And for this, we're going to be in verses 14 through 18. And and in this section, as you'll see in a second, Paul is personally writing about a gift that he received from the Philippians, and and he's thankful to them for it. And so there's a decent amount in these verses that applied mainly to them back then. But when we break it down, we're going to see three overarching things here. First, we're going to see the Philippians' love for Paul. And then we're going to see Paul's love for the Philippians. And then we'll see how God feels about all that. And that's all going to be in verses 14 and 18. So to begin, let's first quickly look at the Philippians' love for Paul. And for this, we're going to read just verses 14 through 16. So let's read those now. Look down at your Bibles. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So, So to see what's going on here, look first at that important verse 14. This is the topic sentence to that whole paragraph, as you can see. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And he starts with yet, because if you remember, if you hear last week, last week Paul's main point was that whether he's in abundance or need, he's learned to be content through Christ's strength. But now this week, he goes back to letting them know that, yes, although he is genuinely content in Christ, yet he is still very thankful for their gift. And specifically, he's thankful that they were kind, Or honestly, maybe even better, this word can be translated as beautiful. 
But perhaps the most important word from that verse is that word share there. You can see it. It was kind of you to share my trouble. Because that word share has actually been a, a pretty important word in this whole letter of Philippians. And in fact, if you somehow remember, all the way back in our first message on this book in April on Philippians 1, 1 through 6, we actually talked a good amount about this root word here. Because there, if you might remember, in Philippians 1.5, Paul opened up this letter by thanking the Philippians, being thankful to the Philippians for their, quote, partnership in the gospel. And back then, all the way back in April, we talked about how this word can be translated as fellowship or partnership. And that applies here this morning, because now in verse 14 of chapter 4, as Paul's concluding the letter, he uses that same root word, which is just translated here as share. And so now, as you can see, he's saying that the Philippians aren't just sharing in the gospel together, but because of that sharing, the Philippians are also partnering. They're sharing in Paul's troubles. So that's what's going on there in verse 14. It's this mutual partnership and unity and love. And it's a partnership which actually participates and shares in the other person's troubles. Or maybe to say it most simply, what we see here is is real love. A real caring about the other person, and especially when they're in trouble. And it is this care then that leads the Philippians to support Paul the way that they did. And you can see that in verses 15 and 16. We already read those verses, but again, if you just skim down there, verse 15 shows us that the Philippians from the very beginning entered into partnership, that's the same word, with Paul. And then in verse 16, it shows us that even when Paul was in Thessalonica, And there was already another church in Thessalonica. Even there, the Philippians helped him again and again. So that's again, that's verses 14 through 16. And we can sum all that up by saying that is the Philippians' love for Paul. They were partners with Paul. They loved Paul, and so they helped him. And as as a quick side note, we of course at this point should point out that Just as all of this between the Philippians and Paul is a picture of mutual love for us to see, so the Philippians themselves here really are just a picture of the love and care that Jesus showed, which if you remember was recounted in detail in this letter in chapter 2. And that's true of any Christian love, unity, and partnership. It all echoes Jesus' love who above all, as we know, was kind and beautiful in such a way where he shared, where he partnered in, where he took fellowship in our troubles when he went to the cross. And so that's the Philippians' love for Paul. But now let's continue to see Paul's love for the Philippians, and this will just be in verse 17. So if you want to look down, we'll read that again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So we can see that this is Paul's love for the Philippians when we understand that he's, what he's saying here. And at first, that definitely sounds a little weird to us, right? Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And we may wonder what that means. Does he even want the gift? Well, in one sense, yes, of course he does. That's why he's thanking them for it over and over. But the point of this verse in verse 17 here is that ultimately Paul's saying that he doesn't just seek a gift. That's not what he's ultimately after. Instead, he seeks, quote, the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, he's thankful for the gift, of course, but genuinely, he's even more excited to watch these Philippians bear such godly fruit before his eyes. (laughs) 
Right? They're showing themselves to be such humble, Jesus-like, loving, sacrificial people. And he's excited that that fruit is increasing to their credit. And that idea there, the increasing to your credit, is similar to Jesus' teaching, as you might know, of laying up treasures for yourself or rewards in heaven. That's essentially what Paul is getting at here. He's saying that he's so thankful for their loving support, but what he's even more excited about is that this is even for their good. (laughs) All because them showing forth God's fruit like this is laying up their reward in heaven. And so for us, if you're tracking, what this really means here is what we're seeing so far at this, in this ending of this letter from Paul and the Philippians is a genuine mutual love. Or a love that really wants the other person's good, which is what love is anyway. Right? Because think of it this way. What's going on on the one hand is the Philippians are sacrificially, humbly loving Paul. They're doing this by sacrificing their own goods and money and sending it to Paul. And so that's love. But then Paul, in response, doesn't just feel thank you, although he does, but more so because he loves them, he's also prizing their good even above his own. In other words, he loves them. He wants their good. And so that's what we see here. And the point for us then is that this is something we need to aim for in our love. As Christian love, as we know, but Christian love is not some sort of quid pro quo type relationship. You know, you do this for me and then I'll do this for you. Nor is it to be this, this dispassionate love of duty, you know, well, I have to love them because they're a Christian. Instead, the goal for us is this mutual, reciprocal, I love you and so I want your good. That's what we see from the Philippians and that's what we see from Paul in response. Which finally leads us to see how God feels about all this. And this will be verse 18. So look down at your Bibles, verse 18. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So, so Paul is using language borrowed from the Old Testament sacrificial system here, and, and you can see his point. He's received more than he's needed. He's well supplied, and he's saying that the Philippians' love for him like this is first a fragrant offering, which which means it was something that, in a sense, smelled good to God. And then along with this, he's saying that it was a sacrifice acceptable. And the idea here is that it's acceptable because they're loving him in the way that God wants them to love, because that's the idea here, because back then in the Old Testament sacrificial system, It wasn't just that the people had to offer sacrifices, but they had to do it in the Lord's way. It had to be an acceptable sacrifice. And so what Paul is saying is that they're loving him in the way that God wants them to love, in this kind, this beautiful, this gospel partnership, sacrificial way. And finally, and most emphatically in verse 18 at the end, this love is pleasing to God. And and that's really then the ultimate point of this first section of ours here. That's the goal. It's not just that we're to love one another and care for one another's good. Of course that's true. But it's that in doing that, in being like that, God is really pleased. It, It not only brings us happiness as we get to love others and be loved by others, but also it makes our God happy. 
So that's verses 14 and 18. And again, for us, obviously the big application after this section is to, by the grace of God, to try to have more of a love, unity, and partnership in the gospel like this, individually and as a church. Because here's the truth. So often we'll talk about love and unity, but when it comes to really loving certain persons... Or really trying to seek out unity for the sake of the gospel, it's then that we realize how hard it is, how much it rubs against our sinful nature, and so we don't do it. But the Philippians here did it, and Paul loved them right back. But but even as we say that, right, let's be careful not to romanticize what we see here in the Bible, because I'm sure it wasn't easy for them to love like this, especially for the Philippians. Because remember, Paul's in prison. And he's in prison all the way in Rome, very far away from Philippi back then. And also remember, they were nowhere near as affluent as we usually are in, as modern people. And, and, and it was risky for them to travel. And so to take some of your scarce resources and, and pull them together and then travel hundreds of miles away, risking your funds and risking your people is no small thing. And so I'm sure this wasn't easy, but in the end... They sacrificially loved. They they, they took this gospel partnership that they knew they had and they showed the reality of it by loving Paul. And so this shows us that mutual love, unity, and partnership will take effort and work. Or Or to make it personal for all of us, it will take effort and energy on your part right, to see this church and everyone in it as fellow partners in the gospel. And not just people you happen to go to church with on Sunday. It'll take energy to think like that. It'll take energy to love them. To really love them. But it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it because it's then, Lord willing, that our church more and more will be a place of genuine love. A love where you care about other people's good and they reciprocate it by loving you and caring about your good. And it'll be worth it because above all, it's then, as our text says, that we will be more and more of a church that is pleasing to our good and gracious God. Which leads us now to our second section this morning. So that was a picture of mutual love, unity, and partnership in the gospel. But now, Paul's going to use that topic to transition to our second section of a massive, beautiful promise of God. A promise that applied to him, to the Philippians, and to us. And for this, we'll be in verses 19 and 20. So let's read those verses now. If you look down, 19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as you can see, verse 19 connects to verse 18 because first, Paul was well supplied, right, by the Philippians' gift. But now the promise is that God will supply whatever they need. And then also in verse 18, Paul's received full payment from them, or he's been given some riches from them, if you will. But now the promise is that God will supply them according to his riches. And so that's how these verses connect. Paul's using the themes from above, but ultimately... What he's doing here is he's transitioning from a specific situation to giving a general promise from God. And honestly, I think it's one of the most comforting 
assuring, and amazing promises of the whole entire Bible. And when I say that, I really mean it. And personally, for me, this is probably the most quoted Bible verse that I quote in my head. It's only rivaled by maybe Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. But Isaiah 26.3, I usually only quote when I'm really anxious or nervous, while this one, Philippians 4.19, I honestly quote all the time because it's always so helpful and applicable. And as we look at it in more depth, I hope you will see why. Because this verse, as you're going to see, always will apply. It's a verse that can always bring you some comfort, that can always fuel your faith. And above all, it is a promise that when you think of it and quote it, will point your heart back upward to God, to Christ, and to his wisdom and power and his love. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go through this promise in verse 19, phrase by phrase. Because I really think it's that amazing. And my hope by the end of this, of course, is that you personally will see how beautiful this promise is. But then also, I hope that you'll possibly make it a personal aim to memorize verse 19, this verse, and to use it yourself. And I say use it because that's really what we need to do a lot with God's word, especially with promises like this. We need to know verses like this, but then when you're going through life and and your daily life and and you feel that you have a need or a want, which is right like all the time, you can use this. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And using it, using it like the sword of the spirit that it is, it can lift you out of that fog, right? It, It can help you trust more that day in your God and it can comfort your heart. And so I really encourage you to consider memorizing Philippians 4.19 here. Even even just repeat it over and over in these next handful of minutes as we go through it now. And I think you'll be able to memorize it. And, And then as you leave here, you can know and love and use this promise. But with that said, let's now look at that promise in detail to see why it's such a great promise. So to begin, first, notice how it starts. And my God, my God. And that's not normal for Paul to write like that. So, so it's clearly intentional. And the idea here is this personal quality of that. And it's interesting because in context, if you think about it, this promise here he's writing is to the Philippians. And so you'd think he'd say, and your God will supply every need of yours. But instead it's, and my God will supply every need of yours. And that's the point. This is my God and your God. And so the point is, this is our God, but even as we say that, we should realize that each one of us should call him my God. And so this means that even as we start talking about this promise, we're starting with God, right? The creator, the sustainer, the one who rules the entire universe, the all-powerful, all-loving one, but most specifically, we begin with my God. And so when you, Lord willing, quote this verse to yourself, you're not only saying God will supply all my needs, but my God will supply all my needs. Which then leads to the next phrase, my God will supply every need of yours. And with that, we see what this promise exactly is. The promise from God in his word is that your needs will, that is a promise from God in his own word, your needs will be met. They will be supplied. And practically then, this means that you don't have to worry. 
as a Christian that there's something in your life you truly need but you don't have. Something that you're missing out on, something that you think you need because you think it would really make your life so much better if you had it. Because if that's the case, God's word is saying to us here, if so, it would be yours. And so if it isn't yours, God hasn't supplied it to you for a good reason. He's got it under control, and that's all because, once again, the promise is my God will supply every need of yours. That's what he's promised to do. And so thus far, we've seen, and my God will supply every need of yours. And if you think about it, the verse could have stopped there. But what is especially unique about this verse, and honestly, what I think makes this promise so beautiful, is that Paul doesn't stop there. Instead, he goes on now to explain how God can do this. And knowing how is a big deal because it solidifies in our hearts that this promise will hold true. So so how can God supply every need of ours? Well, the verse goes on. First, he'll do so according to his riches. And so now think about what this is saying. How is God going to supply all my needs? How is he able to do that? Well, to begin, it's because he's rich. Or to say it another way, it's because he has more than enough wealth or abundance to be able to supply your needs. And specifically in context, it seems Paul's using this word rich because this shows that the Philipp- to the Philippians that God is rich or wealthy enough to supply them for whatever financial needs they might have, especially because they just sent him some money. And that's 100% true for them and for us. As the psalmist says, right, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so God owns and literally controls all earthly wealth. And so he can and will supply you with whatever he knows you need financially. And that's very true. And we need to know that God will supply our our financial needs. But also, the beauty of this verse is that the promise is is much broader than just financial help here. Because remember, the promise is to supply every need of yours. And, And that's why when we hear in the Bible here and elsewhere that God has riches, we shouldn't only think of finances. It's much bigger than that. But instead, we should think about how God just overall abounds That's why the Bible elsewhere speaks about God's abundance in terms like him being, quote, rich in mercy or the riches of his kindness because God's riches are not just financial. Instead, he's rich, meaning he's overflowing. He is abundant. He has everything in his storehouse ready to be dealt out to you at his disposal. And so the point of according to his riches is that it's from that overflowing infinite abundance that God can and will supply every one of your needs. But that's not even all the promise says. It's not only that he will supply all our needs according to his riches, but specifically it's his riches in glory. And here's where this verse gets even, even bigger. So, so God has infinite abundance, and that's how he can supply every one of our needs. But most specifically, he's rich. He has that infinite abundance in glory. And for this, think of it this way. One thing we certainly know about God from the Bible is that he's a God of glory. 
God. He's glorious. And God's glory is just who he is being manifested, being, being put on display, meaning God's glory is his love and his wisdom and his, and his power and his goodness and his majesty and his brilliance all being put on display, being manifested in the world, manifested to people. And so now... What's, what's clear here is the Bible is the Bible's clear that God is glorious. And so, so here, though, why does this matter for us? Now what's going on? Well, because the promise of Philippians 4.19 says to us that every need of ours will be met because God is rich, he's wealthy, he's abundant. But specifically, because God is rich and wealthy and abundant in that glory. And so now the picture is of all of God's glory, all of his abundant goodness and brilliance and wisdom and power and kindness being pointed our way. Working to supply our needs, which is amazing. Which finally leads to that last phrase of the promise, and this is the climax. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And this is the climax because this promise is saying to us here now two things, two things. First, it's telling us where these riches in glory are found. And where are they? In his son, in Christ. And, and this is consistent, as you might know, with all the teachings in the Bible about Jesus and God's glory because Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the revelation of God's glory to us. Meaning, if you want to see how good and just and wise and powerful and kind God is, look at Jesus. And so that's the first thing that this is saying. The riches of God's glory are in Christ Jesus. But then again, you might ask, well, what does that have to do with us if they're in Christ Jesus? That leads to the second thing that this in Christ Jesus is saying. Because remember, the biblical truth is that on our own, we're sinful and, and, and we're not on God's side. Right? The Bible is clear, and this is part of the Christian gospel. The Bible is clear that we're enemies of God on our own. Right? That we want nothing to do with him, that we deserve his right judgment. And, and so the question is, why does God, how can God promise to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory when we don't deserve any of it? When we're sinners, when we're willful enemies of him on our own? Well, the answer is it's because of the gospel. It's because of the gospel which tells us that Jesus came. He lived the perfect life. He died for the sins of all who would trust in him and he rose again. And now those who trust in him are not only forgiven and saved forever. That's very true. But even more so, we're now said to be in Christ Jesus. We're now united to God's son. Inseparable now and forever. And so now those riches and glory that are found in Christ Jesus are ours in him. We don't deserve any of it. Right? We, we never will. But because of the gospel, now God's abundant glory and goodness is pointed our way in Christ Jesus. Or to say one last way, this in Christ Jesus shows us that the reason God pours out his riches and glory upon us and provides every need of ours isn't ultimately because of who you and I are. He's not, he's not looking at us and thinking we're so great. 
and so deciding to pour out his glory and provide for us. And in fact, let that be an encouragement to you. Yes, he is your God. You can call him my God. And yes, he loves you more than you know, but you are not the ultimate foundational reason for why he loves you and why he provides for you. As strange as that may sound. Instead, the Christian gospel is that if you trust in Christ, you have been swept up into the very love of the Trinity, the abundant glory of the Trinity. You are now united to Christ in Christ. And so God the Father loves his Son. He has always, forever, in eternity past, loved his Son. And now, because of the gospel, you're in his Son, and so he loves you. And the point of our passage here is the same is true for why God provides for you. God has always loved and his glory has always been abundant in his son. And now since you're in his son, that glory is directed your way and he will supply all your needs. So that's the promise. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But two final things on this promise. First, I want to be clear, especially with that last phrase in Christ Jesus, I want to be clear that this promise is only for those who trust in Christ. It's right there. It's only for those who are in Christ Jesus. And and so this means that if you're sitting here this morning and you don't genuinely trust in Jesus, that you you don't really bank your life on him, maybe church is just something your family does, or or maybe it's just a cultural thing you've always done, or maybe you go to church because you just want to be a good person, if that's you, then I encourage you, trust in Christ this morning. Don't lean on yourself. Instead, bank your all on him. Because Jesus, the living God, came, lived a perfect life, died for sinners, and and rose again. And now anyone who trusts in him will be forgiven, now and forevermore, but also will be united to him, enjoying his love, his goodness, and his promises, like Philippians 4.19. And so again, if you don't know Jesus... I encourage you, come to him even this morning. Maybe even talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about this, but I just encourage you, don't leave here without knowing him. And so then knowing that this promise is for you. So that's the first thing. But then second, for those of us who are Christians, I want to address how we might be hearing this promise. And although we may think it's beautiful, we might also be struggling a little bit. I say that because you, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, if this promise is true, 100% true, then why am I not better off right now? Yeah, how, how come this promise hasn't made me abundant and overflowing? Well, the answer is because, as we can all see, the promise is about God's love and how he provides for all our needs. And the promise is about God's power and his ability to provide for all our needs. And the promise is even about the gospel, which is why God's love and power are pointed our way. But what we also need to see is that this promise is about God's wisdom too. God's love, his power, and his wisdom. And we can see that and that this promise isn't just that God has lovingly and powerfully promised to provide, but he has specifically promised to supply and provide all our needs. 
And he alone in his perfect wisdom knows what those needs are. And, and so we should not take this promise to mean I'm now going to have such ease and prosperity. <laughs> because the truth is, church, God loves us way more than that. Instead, he's promised to powerfully supply whatever he lovingly knows we need, what he knows is best for us. And so this means that you can take heart with whatever comes your way because even if we don't know what he's doing or why he's doing what he's doing, we can quote this verse with confidence. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That then leads us briefly to verse 20. So with that promise in mind, you can see Paul transitions to this benediction. Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And this makes sense, right? After such a great promise, what's the response? May he be glorified. Right? He's so good to us. To our Father, the one who cares for us so much in this way, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let it be. So that's the main part of our text this morning, a picture of mutual love, unity, and partnership in the gospel, and then this beautiful promise, a a promise that I hope once again that we not only understand but love and use in our lives. But now as we finish our message, let's come to a close by looking at the way Paul finishes the letter. And for this, we'll read verses 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so this is a typical ending to a letter like this, as you might know from the Bible. Paul ends by sending greetings from fellow saints and then by giving them a benediction to close. And and coincidentally, and I think it is just a coincidence, when we look at these two closing parts of this final greeting here, we can see they somewhat correspond to our two sections that we looked at this morning. Because first, in verses 21 through 22 here, we not only see greetings, but what we can see behind those greetings is the early church's mutual love, unity, and partnership in the gospel. Because notice verse 21, Paul commands them to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And just remember, the word saint is literally just the Greek word for set apart one or holy one. And the Bible's very clear that anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ is literally a saint. And so the idea here is to love and to greet anyone who knows and believes in Christ Jesus, and that shows a special unity that they had. And the same unity and love is seen in the fact that Paul calls these Christians with him in Rome, individuals that the Philippians almost certainly never met, he calls them their brothers in the same family in verse 21. And then this unity finally is seen even in the fact that he sends greetings from all the saints in verse 22. And lastly on this, amazingly, we even get a glimpse of what that mutual family-like Christian love led to. It's amazing at the end of verse 22, it led to the gospel spreading even to places in the early church like Caesar's household. But then the letter finally comes to an end in verse 23. And this is the typical ending for Paul in his letters, but just because it's typical, it does not mean it's not incredibly intentional because I really think it is. Because remember, if you might remember, what we saw months ago was that Paul always starts his letters with grace to you, but then as he ends his letters, he always writes grace be with you. 
And so the idea now as we end the letters is, is as the Philippians now go and live for Christ in Philippi and as Paul now goes and tries to live for Christ in his prison cell in Rome and as we church now go from this letter and try to live for Christ here in Connecticut, there's this benediction in verse 23. Let's read it one last time. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that's how the letter ends. And this is so fitting. Because as we know, the ultimate basis of our faith is not in us, but it's in Christ and in his grace in the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. But now as we close this letter, what we also need to know is that as we live our Christian lives, it's still ultimately not us, but God's grace. And this means now as we go from this letter, we need to know that we cannot do this on our own. And so concerning the many things that we saw throughout this letter, this means we can't trust Jesus on our own. We can't persevere to the day of Christ on our own. We can't pray on our own. We can't believe to live as Christ and to die as gain on our own. We can't be humble on our own. We can't be unified on our own. We can't not grumble on our own. We can't press on on our own. We can't rejoice in the Lord on our own. We can't pray and find peace in our anxieties on our own. We can't be content on our own. We can't love one another well on our own. And we can't even rely on God's promises on our own. We can't do any of that on our own. But that's why the letter ends the way it does. Take heart. There's grace. <laughs> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so now, church, as we end this letter with Jesus' grace having come to us through all we've heard, let us now go with Christ's grace with us. All for our unity and love and joy, all for the furthering of the gospel and ultimately all for the glory of this God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.